Welcome to Book, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Olivia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. The book we're reviewing this week is actually 1Q84 by Haruki Murakami. Uh, A little bit about Murakami. He was born in Kyoto in 1949 and now lives near Tokyo. His works have been translated into 42 different languages, and he has published about a dozen books over the last three decades, as well as many short stories and essays. We're going to give you the synopsis um, straight from Amazon. It's going to be the only really unbiased thing you hear for the rest of this episode. So, The year is 1984, and the city is Tokyo. A young woman named Aomame follows a taxi driver's enigmatic suggestion and begins to notice puzzling discrepancies in the world around her. She has entered, she realizes, a parallel existence, which she calls 1Q84. Q is for question mark, a world that bears a question. Meanwhile, an aspiring writer named Tango takes on a suspect ghostwriting project. He becomes so wrapped up in the work and its unusual author that soon his previously placid life begins to come unraveled. As Aomame and Tango's narratives converge over the course of the single year, we learn of the profound and tangled connections that bind them ever closer. A beautiful dyslexic teenage girl with a unique vision, a mysterious religious cult that instigated a shootout with the Metropolitan Police, a reclusive wealthy dowager, is that right, dowager? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Who runs a shelter for abused women, a hideously ugly private investigator, a mild-mannered yet ruthlessly efficient bodyguard, and a peculiarly insistent television fee collector. That's okay. Now that's most of the synopsis that was on Amazon, but there's this final chat, the little uh, paragraph that I highlighted in red (laughs) because I just thought it was crazy. So here's, here's the final paragraph of that synopsis, a love story, a mystery, a fantasy, a novel of self-discovery, a dystopia to rival George Orwell's 1Q84 is Haruki Murakami's most ambitious undertaking yet an instant bestseller in his native Japan and a tremendous feat of imagination from one of our most revered contemporary writers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll be honest, and, and I know I get razzed by some people at some of the things I didn't, um, haven't read. I haven't read 1984, um, but I can't imagine that it's as, uh, as poorly put together as this book is. Okay, before we get, before the claws come fully out, let's tell you a little bit about some of the characters that are in the book. Uh, one of the main characters is Aomame, who's a, a 30-year-old woman working as a basically like a fitness instructor, you know, physical therapist type of person uh, who also is in her spare time essentially an assassin. Um, the other part of the love story um, is Tango. Uh, he is a um, an aspiring author who's drawn into the story when he is asked to rewrite um, a, a story that was being submitted for a, for a competition. Other main character; those are the two main characters, and a couple of other recurring characters in the book. One is Ushikawa, who is um, this ridiculously ugly guy who was hired to investigate as a private investigator, essentially to investigate Tengo. And then later on also to look into Aomame. Um, he's this really relentless uh, investigator type guy, but he's horribly ugly and no one really likes him and no one feels comfortable around him. Um, just a couple other characters. Kamatsu, who's a, an editor of a publishing company. He's the one who, um, who puts together this whole ghost writing project and, therefore is the catalyst for everything that occurs in this book basically and then the final character that's really worth mentioning as a main character uh, her name is Ariko Fukada but she's called Fuka Eri in the book and she's the one who wrote this um, the original story that Tango is is kind of brought into to to, to rewrite to I guess ghostwrite is the best way to say it and um, she's a 17-year-old girl who's dyslexic who essentially dictated her story to someone who then wrote it. And then Tango is brought in to you know, kind of fluff it up and make it more literary and complete and everything. All right, so those are the characters. The way these characters get involved, we talk a little bit about this story. But um, basically, the all of them enter a slightly different alternate reality and uh, the the basis of that is they're they're in this world that has two moons where things are 
um, basically the same in most cases. Some things in history have changed, um, but there's a, there's another element, a higher power element that's kind of controlling this this different world that they live in. Mm-hmm. And the way they all kind of mesh together, uh, we mentioned when we were telling about the individual characters, but so Fuka Eri writes this story that is then submitted to uh, to a, a new writer's kind of competition or whatever to win a prize. Uh, Tango really likes it and he wants to submit it. Komatsu gets the idea if um, if if he has Tango ghostwrite it or you know kind of tidy it up and fix it up and make it better, it's going to be a sure fire sensation. So they enter into this kind of conspiracy, Tango and Komatsu, and then with the permission of Fuka Eri and her uh, her legal guardian, they all kind of enter into this. Um, I guess conspiracy to write this this story and and if it were to come out that they did this together to win this prize it would be a big scandal and so there's a lot at risk and everything and and that's how those people all get pulled together um, and then the side effect of this being published and becoming such a big sensation is that it reveals some secrets about uh, you know this religious cult that um, they don't want people knowing about. Yeah, that's really where the book takes off, and all hell just kind of trickles slowly out. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, you know, Livius, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I feel like in order to really air our, our main thoughts on this, we might have to get a little spoilery on this. Um, but I think it, it, it makes sense, too. Uh, what do you think about it? I, I agree, and so let's go with this disclaimer. I mean, we usually don't throw this out this early. Nobody should really read this book. So if you really, really want to read it, and we don't want to tell people not to listen to our show, but now's probably a good time to, to go ahead and just uh, click the pause button, give up three weeks of your life, read the book, and then come back to hear what we had to say about it. Or in other words, if you plan on reading it and you don't want it spoiled, this is where we're going to start talking spoilers. Um <laughs> I guess that's the least harsh way of saying it, but um, yeah, we are we're gonna get a little more spoilerly than usual. But it, it's in order to to have a decent conversation about the book, um, I think it's kind of necessary. Start a little bit with the origin of the book, which isn't necessarily spoiler. I guess this book is clocked in at Amazon at nine hundred forty-five pages, so it's a, it's a massive undertaking. Um, you know, for for Murakami obviously to write it, but um, for the reader as well. Originally, it was released in three individual parts in uh, Japan, and where it said it was a, a immediately a bestseller. Apparently, the first printing um, sold out uh, the first day, according to Wikipedia. Right. So, released in three different volumes. Later on, it was uh, released. It was released in the UK as two different volumes. Right. The first two parts as the initial volume, and then the third part as a separate volume, and then in America. In the United States, released as one gigantic. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I can't understand why the, the you know the the disparity and in, in, in the way they released it. There's really no. I, I mean, maybe it has to do with the translation and and this and the length of the book in the translation or something. But it seems weird that they would go so many different ways in releasing it. Yeah, yeah, it it certainly does. I mean, my thoughts on it are that. In reading this, they're they're clearly broken up into three books, and and I don't know. It, it doesn't seem to me that it was tailored in any way to flow smoother as one book, which we'll talk about a little bit as one of the issues. Um, I I just think that in standalone books, and when I saw the end of book one, I kind of reflected back on what I read, and I thought there there was no climax, there was no ending. I just don't. I I wouldn't have picked up the second book. Yeah, that's the thing. Um... The book actually is separated into sections. There's book one, book two, book three. And then, oddly, at the very end, did you, did you see a number four? I don't know what that meant, but there was a four at the end, I think. But there's Yeah, it's I think because <laughs> the book, I think, starts with a one, and I think later on there's a Q in there. I think that's oh. the end, one, two, eight, four. Anyway, so there are there's definite, you know, separation of books. But like Livia said, if you, if I picked up, an individual printed book that was the contents of the first third of the book and read that there's, I had, I would have no incentive to pick up the next one. There's no, I mean, it would not survive as its own book. You know, if, if for whatever reason it never got to book two, that book by itself 
is not a complete story or even like, you know, not even a really good part of a story. Yeah, there was nothing at that point that made me care what happened to any of these people. <laughs> so I guess that's that's the roadblock number one. The composition or the, the, the layout of the book itself is a little confusing. Like, I, I mean... I mean, there are omnibus editions of stuff like the Phineas Poe trilogy, Will Christopher Bear. I have the omnibus edition, so it has all three of the books in that trilogy together. But there are their own separate entity. They work on their own. And even the way that the book, like the table of contents and everything, like it's obvious that this is three books bound together. It's not one story broken up into three parts, I guess. It's uh, I mean, I, there might be some financial considerations. I mean, the the hype around that book had to be so great that if it truly did sell out in one day, financially, I would think that you know, and just think about this a little bit. If you had uh, you know, three smaller books come out, you would charge more than one hardcover edition that was three times the size, right? Mm-hmm. So it'd probably be. I mean, let's just look at flat out retail, you know, Barnes and Noble pricing. Probably three hardcovers, nineteen ninety nine each. They'd be on. 40% off because they're going to be bestsellers um, or, you know, seven or eight dollars more to have the big edition. So I think for Japan, that may have been a, a financial decision to do that. Hmm. It's possible, especially I mean, with it selling out one day, that sounds a little crazy. But they <laughs> must have. I mean, they must have anticipated that from the hype. And if they know that well enough ahead of time, I'm just, hey, let's, you know, let's sell three books instead of one. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like Murakami is an unknown author. He's he's definitely legendary and he's very very well known and well regarded in a lot of ways so yeah they had to expect that this book was was going to be a, a big hit it's probably a good point to touch on one of the things that didn't work in this book um not only do you read the rehashing at the beginning of book two and of book three which makes sense if it's serialized um but man, I mean, talk about having some of these concepts just constantly driven into your head. I mean, I had to have read the same passage or, you know, kind of a restructured same passage a dozen times about each one of these characters' childhoods. That's exactly right. And it's not as if, I mean, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to it's like, it's let's say like I'm going down the road and um, I'm walking for a distance and I'm, I'm kind of saying out loud what I'm doing, but then I meet someone and then we start walking and I tell them everything I said before, but then we also talk about what we're doing and then we like meet a third person and then we start <laughs> telling, you know what I'm saying? And it keeps going like that. Every time that there's something new that's introduced, it seems like he had to address all these things that had already happened and that the reader already knew about. It, it's, <laughs> I don't really know why. I don't know if it was a stylistic choice. If it was, it kind of you know fell flat for me. But it was just, <laughs> it, it just it just kept going like that, and I, I was baffled by it. And this happened within the books. One of the things I mentioned to Rob before was um, Stephen King's The Green Mile came out in I think it was eight or nine serialized novels, and they came out like every other month or something for a year or whatever it worked out to. And I under I. When I bought it, I bought what would be considered the omnibus edition. I bought it all together, and they didn't edit it at all. And, you know, I read it over the course of four or five days, but it's like at the end of, or at the beginning of every new chapter, the serialized chapter, they had to do some rehashing and stuff, you know. So I, I, it was annoying to me, and I had said back then, you know, if someone really wanted to sell this as a novel, they needed to go back and edit some of this stuff out. But Murakami did this stuff within the same book. You know, within book one, two, and three, you know, like we'll probably refer to them as the rest, you know, for the rest of the review. Within, you know, book two, you heard the same things um, four or five times. And then, you know, that of stuff you read in book one. And then again, stuff you'll read again in book three. And it just got to be very, very tedious. I actually have a quote that, that re- <laughs> I'm going to use this quote because I, well, I want people to understand. All right. Now, this quote that I'm about to read was probably beyond 80% into the book. So we've read book one, we've read book two, we're almost done with the book, and and this is an actual paragraph in the book. There was something different about this girl. She had a special something that most people didn't. First of all, that sentence right there, in and of itself, those two sentences, very repetitive and redundant, uh, but it goes on. Ushikawa didn't know a lot about Ariko Fukada. 
From what he gathered, she was leader's only daughter, had run away from Sakigaki at age 10, had grown up in the household of a well-known scholar named Professor Ebisuno, and had written a novel entitled Air Chrysalis, which was reworked by Tengo Kawana and became a bestseller. But she was supposedly missing now. A missing persons report had been filed with the police, and the police had searched Sakigaki headquarters not long ago. Okay, I mean, that's really retelling most of the story in one very succinct paragraph, but it's just Ushikawa reflecting on something that he already knew about and the reader had already read multiple times. So what's the purpose of this paragraph? It just doesn't make sense. And this is happening multiple times throughout the book the entire time. Yeah, I, I, I can second that for you. And like I mean, at one point, I think I told Rob that if I hear about like Tango's childhood one more time, I'm going <laughs> to tell myself. I think that was my exact statement to him because it was always the exact same thing. How his father dragged him around on Sundays to collect fees for TV and how he wasn't allowed to do his own thing and how jealous he was of all of his friends who got to do things. And I mean, the, literally, there's probably 20 instances in the book where Morikami explains this exact same thing to you. And to be quite frank... I don't see how much of his childhood had anything to do with what was going on in the current story. Right, and that's the thing. If it was relevant to what was going on, or if he wanted to make sure that the reader understood a connection between one thing and this the Tango's past, sure, that would make sense. But I mean, any t- I mean, like it's just happening without impacting the context of what's going on or, or enriching the story at all. He's just saying it again. I can't explain why he would want to do that. Only guy I want to give one more example, and this is going to kind of be people who didn't read it won't understand it quite well. But Rob, he spent three, maybe four Kindle pages very early on talking about how Aomame's facial expressions when she frowned made her like unnatural looking and almost kind of monstrous. Do you remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That had nothing to do anywhere. Like I kept expecting that to come up somewhere in the story. Like, that would be a plot point, mm-hmm. and not once. So he spent three or four pages telling us this woman is, is fair-looking, she's kind of pretty, she's this. But when she frowns or scowls, man, people that turns heads, children run away from her. You know, it, it goes in this very, very long description. So I kept thinking that at some point something would, would come of that as a story after spending that much time reading about it, and it just never did. It's like he had a plan for it, maybe, and then, like, forgot about it later. <laughs> And another one of my big notes about the the thing, and we've kind of said it, but I want to I want to emphasize, I want to reiterate. He goes into very very great detail, and and just rambles about practically anything. Um, it, it would be fine if, if if like one of the characters was just kind of eccentric, and that was, you know, a character flaw of theirs or whatever. But I mean, the narrator, the narration of the book is just rambling and very detailed about everything, and so. Anytime anything new is introduced, you know, an apartment building or, or you know, something like that, it's it's you can expect like a half a page of detailed description of of what's going on or, you know, the the item he's talking about or the people that are on a train or something. It just goes on and on and just rambles, and it doesn't do anything to enhance the story. I think before we. Uh... Before we work commie this anymore, we can move on to the rest <laughs> of our crimes. Um, <laughs> back to just characters themselves. For most, in most cases, the characters came off as really, really flat. I know Rob's going to disagree with me. Um, I liked two characters out of the whole story. Um, Ushikawa is the only one that can be considered uh, like a main character because he is the third point of view we see outside of Tango and, and uh, Aomame's. And I liked Kamatsu, who was the uh, the editor, and he was just kind of a gruff, I don't care about anything kind of guy. Um, but the rest of the characters all came across as just being absolutely lifeless. I agree with that. And all right, this is a love story, and the two main characters, all right, this is definitely going to be into spoiler territory now. I mean, that quote that I read is heavy with spoilers, but like, the, there's these two main characters, and and they're you know they've got this enduring pure love for each other that was sparked when they were in school together in middle school. Um, but they basically both spent 20 years, um, too afraid to, you know, even, I guess, admit to themselves that they had feelings for each other. And I, 
and and fine i'm sure that that actually happens to people but on top of that like they're just i don't know there's just like like olivia said they're very flat and boring like when i when i think about a love story i want to have emotions stirred up in me and i want to you know empathize with with one of the characters both of the characters their story was just so boring and like <sighs> lifeless that i couldn't get that buy-in at all no matter no matter what and i'll agree with livius probably i did <laughs> i did think that ushikawa was the most interesting character but it was because oddly enough even though he wasn't the person that they spent most of the time on he seemed like he was the most developed in a way and even some of the more emotional things with him kind of fell flat for me he just came across as clever and and yeah I, again it, back to the repeating things how many more times did they tell us how, how how many more times did he tell us how ugly that man was? Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, like every paragraph that he was in, something came up. If he was on a bus, someone was staring at him because he was ugly. If, you know, he walked into a building, people ran away from him because he was ugly. I mean, it was just very, very constant. Yeah. But that repetition was inconsistent, too. Like, the one thing, and I don't know if we didn't talk about this. I don't know if you're going to have, I don't know if you're going to have recognized this or not, but... Um, Ushikawa was a, a smoker and the brand of cigarettes he smoked was called Seven Stars I think and for the most part whenever they talked about Ushikawa smoking he'd say he you know opened his pack of Seven Stars or he took out a Seven Star or something like that but not all the time and and it was weird that I noticed that I mean he repeated so much this mo- this this action of, of pulling out a cigarette and referring to it as a Seven Star that when they didn't refer to it as that I was like, wait a minute, why is it not a seven star now? And like, so, I mean, it was still repetition, but like he wasn't even very consistent with his repetition, which bothered me even more. I didn't catch that. I did think it was, it was a little odd that he referred to him as seven star cigarettes. There was probably five or six times that he just said cigarette instead out of like the 20 times that he referred to the guy smoking seven stars and it just bothered the hell out of me. I didn't catch that, but yeah, that's an interesting point. I thought it was odd that he's mentioned it by brand, which isn't something that happens very frequently. You know, yeah. people drink beer in books, you know, not <laughs> you know, not genuine draft or Heineken or whatever. So yeah, um, you ready to talk about some plot issues? Yeah, like, go. For, you want to? I'll start. Um, uh, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's just some really weird stuff that goes on and. And again, this goes back to, you know, Rob said one of the issues was being repetitive, but then consistency. So we get a pretty fluid story up until around the 80% mark. And then for the next 10% of the book, everything is completely out of sequence. As you go back and forth between these characters and their points of view, you're on a character's point of view that's now. And the very next section, you're reading it and you're like, I know this doesn't really make sense to me. And then you find out that it's two weeks prior to where the other character is. Am I explaining that right, Rob? Is that making sense? Yeah, the thing we hadn't mentioned, though, um, the way that the book is laid out is that every chapter is from a character's perspective. So for the first two-thirds of the book, it jumps from Aomame to Tango and then back to Aomame, and it kind of you know oscillates back and forth or whatever you want to call it. Um, but then once Ushikawa is thrown into the mix, it kind of rotates between the three of them. So every chapter, you're seeing it from one perspective, or you're seeing what's going on with that character. Um, and then, like Livia said, I mean, it's very fluid up to a point, and then everything just gets so out of order, and um, it gets really confusing. Like, we had conversations where we're like, is this what's going on? And, and, and like, it, you have to mentally analyze what you read to figure out that the timeline is not you know linear anymore it's it's really confusing so there's this part in the book it's 83 percent of the way into the book and for those of you who don't know why we aren't seeing page numbers we read it on kindle you can't really get page numbers so all right 83 percent of the way into the book up until now as rob just explained one chapter is aomame one chapter is tango as you get into the later, the second half of the book, basically, Ushikawa comes up. He has a third point of view on all of this as he's trying to, to figure out what's going on between these two people. And then 83% of the way into the book, actually, we just cut the episode a little bit so I can go back and, and kind of gather my thoughts on it. We're in a section that Aomame is, is um, she's the, the kind of narrative voice of the section. It's her point of view that's going on. 
and there's a like a little like you know line break and then out of nowhere it's like Murakami is giving you so the first time this happens the only time it's the book is 83% in it's almost like he's giving you his idea in this wrap up of, of what's <laughs> going on with them and, and I'm going to read just like a, like a little paragraph about this so you can understand so we're reading all along and it's Aomame is doing this and this is what she wants to do and this is what's going on in her head and I'm going to skip the first three paragraphs but it says at any rate, the circle was drawing in tighter, but Tango and Aomame weren't aware that the circle around them was closing in. Ushikawa sensed what was happening since he was actively taking steps to tighten it, but even he couldn't see the big picture. He didn't know the most important point, that the distance between him and Aomame was now no more than a couple dozen meters. So he went from, you know, character to character to character to for like just four paragraphs, <laughs> not even its own chapter, in the middle of an Aomame chapter, to you know, omnipotent narrator that knows about all three of them. And we don't get that at any point throughout this book. Why? Yeah. And again, you have to think why, I mean, I mean, it could be something as simple as like the editor said, you need to disambiguate, you know, this needs some disambiguation or whatever. Like you need to clear this up in a very succinct way or something, or, you know, it might be something weird like that, but there's no, that, that throws off the entire consistency of how the entire, you know, 800 previous pages were written <laughs> yeah it's just very odd and there's there's no there's no even break to say like this is its own chapter like i don't know how well i would have accepted that anyway but as i'm reading this you know my first thought is well how does she even know about ushikawa she didn't even know his name she knows like there's this guy like kind of looking into some things and then i realized that it's not her thoughts and it's not tango it's just like like haruki's thoughts or, or i like i don't even know what to say about it so <laughs> Yeah, it's weird. A couple other, so we, we're not, you know, Murakami-ing this all night. Um, a couple other weird things. All right, so some really strange stuff happens in the book, and and we may or may not have alluded to. Part of the book is it involves a religious cult, and the religious cult has this leader. And, and long story short, this is spoilers or whatever, but um, <laughs> in order for the, the, the leader is basically a conduit for these mystical beings that they call little people and in the in the course of all the weird shit that they do to to hear the voice of the little people and you know whatever that you know that whole thing is about um <laughs> this is just really weird part that i don't think was necessary for the book um where the leader has these, I can't even remember, some sort of maidens or something that chamber, he has. Chamber maids? Is that what they were called? I don't know. So, yeah. <laughs> but there's these three or four girls or whatever who are all, you know, God, I really, I mean, I feel so weird just even just saying it out loud, but essentially they're like children. They're, you know, under the age of 12 or whatever. One of them's 10 years old. One's 10 years old. Okay. And, um, part of their religious ritual with hearing the voices of the little people or whatever involves him becoming fully paralyzed and these children having sex with him. And like, <laughs> you know what, if you're going to like, if he introduced this disturbing element, because it is disturbing to think of or read about, um, it needs to be something that you can't have the story without. And, to be completely honest, at least from my perspective, there didn't ha have to be any child rape in this. <laughs> I mean, like, this story could have gone perfectly well without having the leader of a religious cult having sex with 10-year-olds. Just my opinion. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's something that stood out as something where I was like, really, Haruki? You couldn't have figured out another way? I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I will defend Haruki for the only time on this episode. Um, there is a little more to that story where they're the girls are. I don't know, I get into the whole thing. Think invasion of the body snatchers. You know, yeah. kind of clones of the actual girls is my understanding. But still, Rob is right. It was not integral to the story at all for them to be ten. The actual act, I think, was somewhat integral to the story, but they certainly didn't have to be, you know, ten year olds. So yeah, it could have been anybody. Very strange way, and like I said, the, the laughter and stuff you heard was certainly not um, encouraging this or thinking that was funny, just the, how strange and uncomfortable it was in the book when it was so unnecessary. Yeah, 
And even, I mean, maybe, and to me, like Olivia said in his defense, these are like pod people kind of things or whatever. They're not the original girls. But at the same time, that's just like kind of a weird, like, like a loophole or something, right? I mean, like, I don't know. It's just, it was really weird for me and it felt very, very unnecessary. Now, this was written in Japan. So I don't know. Well, no, but what I know of Asian cinema is that there are some things that are fully acceptable in Asian cinema that stuff would get thrown out of theaters here for. So let's just say that as a culture, what they find acceptable, not saying that justifying raping children is what they find acceptable, but what they find acceptable in their fiction or whatever could vary differently from here. That's where it's up to the American editors to make some editorial decisions on (laughs) what you're going to put in your book. I mean, that's how I feel about that and i am by no means an advocate of censorship in any way but i am an advocate of like making sense like if you're gonna have (laughs) children's sex in a book make it like very necessary you know like don't just kind of throw it in there like i mean i off the top of my head i could think of about seven different you know directions you could have gone in that didn't involve you know that type of thing so (laughs) fine if you're gonna do it like (laughs) My name is Rob Olson, and I endorse making sense. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Just make it make sense, man. Luckily, though, I will say, <laughs> luckily and thankfully, that's not one of the things that's incredibly repetitive. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm. I want to talk a little bit about this next point, but Rob's notes are just fantastic on this. They're kind of funny and they're very point on. So, will you go into this next section? Um. And talk about this for a second, just because yeah. this note is wonderful. Okay, um, and I, my understanding, I haven't read Murakami books before. This is my first. This is my introduction to Murakami book, and um, what I understand of him, though, there's kind of a theme in his other books where he'll do kind of a. Some would call it magical realism. Some would just say a, a fantasy element in a in a in a you know a non fantasy book or you know that. But if you're gonna introduce a fantasy element, in my opinion, you make it something that's really awesome, you know, or, or, or again, integral to the story. Um, or you make it very anecdotal where it's just like kind of a quirk or something strange or, you know, just like a a fleeting thing, but you don't make it integral and boring, I guess is, 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 and that's what I think happened with, with one Q84. So uh, we'll go further into some spoiler alerts here because I did want to talk about this a little bit. Rob mentioned the little people. The little people are a higher power of sorts. They exert some type of control over what goes on in the world of 1Q84. Um, the, the leader that he talked about, he is the conduit for the voice. The voice tells the, this religious group what to do. We barely meet the little people. We never hear the voice nor do the little people or the voice really influence the story in any great way. There's some things that happen. So we know the little people can influence the story. It never comes to anything. And there is absolutely no climax in this book. This book fizzled out. Yeah, really. I mean, if you, if you want my opinion of what the little people did, the little people made it really obvious that you were in a different world or an alternate reality or whatever, um, where things are messed up. But I fully agree with Livius. Like, man, not, not necessary at all. Here's the whole thing. So, Rob, what was the what was the drive? What, what did the little people actually want? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so you introduce this this magical group of beings, and um, they make air chrysalises for Dodas and Mazas, and I, it just it meant fucking nothing. Well, here, here, here's what here's the only thing that they wanted in this book that was an actual want that was quantifiable. They wanted people to not know about them. And the conflict that arises because of that want is that, you know, Fuka Eri had written the book Air Chrysalis, which basically makes people know about them. So, I mean... Dude, I think they were successful because I don't know the first thing about the little people. (laughs) I think Haruki Murakami might be a little person because I really don't know much about them either. But, I mean, back to the point. It's a big-time fantasy element. It's, it's, you know, 
these people who, I mean, first of all, the, the way they appear, the first time that they're mentioned that they appear is, is a little girl, uh, Fuka Eri actually had, had uh, at one point in her, she was living within the, the confines of this cult community um, and was, was charged with watching over a herd of goats. And there was a blind goat that she um, had neglected to save. I mean, she let it die, but like if a goat's going to die, what's a 10-year-old girl going to do to save it? I don't understand that. But anyway, she gets punished by being locked into a like a barn with this goat for 10 days. And then while she's locked in this barn, the goat's mouth opens up and these six little people come out. And 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 then she's so they're explaining, they're talking to her and she's she's trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And they're like, well, the goat's dying opened up a passageway, but it's only a temporary passageway. And, and, and even like the stuff that is explained doesn't make any sense. Like, why would a dead goat be a temporary passageway? Why do they need to establish a permanent pass? I mean, are they good? Are they evil? You, you just don't know. You have no idea what their motivation is or what any of their actions are, short of harming some people close to the main characters. And they're not gaining anything that I can imagine from being in this world. I, yeah, it's it's so confusing. I don't understand these little people thing at all. And then to give you one final example that totally ties into this, um, <clears throat> I'm okay with loose ends in books and stuff being left to the imagination. This was 945 pages, and there were some <laughs> elements that were introduced that made no that, that that just were never explained as to why they were there. There was no, not necessarily I need closure on everything, but goddamn it, it's almost a thousand pages. At a thousand pages, <laughs> I want it wrapped up tight with a bow on it. I, I don't want to have any question. If it's a question, I better have misunderstood or skipped a page or something if I don't understand what happened in a thousand pages. And what? there were several things that were just like, you know, again, kind of cool ideas. Maybe they could have turned into something cool and just nothing. It just completely dropped. Here's one. I hadn't thought about this. I don't think we've talked about it. What about the crow? Yes. Exactly. There's a crow that shows up consistently throughout at least like the second half of the book, um, and it and it lands or, or you know it shows up at people's houses and it starts cawing and stuff like that, and they know about it and they people talk about it, but there's no like, it never goes anywhere. It's just like oh this crow shows up every day. Um, that crow I do believe is in one of the first scenes with Tango way on early on in the book. Right. And yes, you're right. At least a dozen times the crow shows up. It means absolutely nothing to the story. Yep. Or that fee collector. What's going on with the fee collector? Oh, yeah. You want to talk about weird? <laughs> That's, yeah. First of all, so the book takes place in 1984, and we have to assume that most of this is based on, you know, reality of 1984. So in Japan, this was Japan's idea for, for television. They broadcast television stations. Um, you know, like you get NBC or ABC here, and you turn on your TV, and it's there. And then they send a guy around to collect <laughs> a fee for you watching television. I think I may have found the least rewarding job in the entire world is to be an NHK fee collector. Which is what um, Tango's father did. And Tango's father, again, <sighs> not necessary. Like, not necessary at all. Like, there's a lot of time spent with Tango's father. And um and their relationship and I mean it's not you know uh, let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater. All right. So Tango hasn't really <laughs> talked to his father much since he was like fourteen or something when he went away to high school and like earned his own keep. So his father was this NHKP collector that would drag the boy around with him on weekends to yell at people through their doors and intimidate them into paying for television that they get for free. <coughs> So Tango's father's dying. Tango goes to, to see his father and to be with him. His father's in a coma. And I guess what happens <laughs> is <laughs> Tango's father astrally projects himself while he's in this coma to be an NHK fee collector to try and collect money from some of the other central characters in the book that, that he doesn't even have any knowledge of. So he shows up as this kind of... this this person that just bangs on your door and, and, you know, knows these things about you and wants you to pay him for the TV that you're watching or not watching in the cases of two of the three people that I think that he comes up to. 
And just there's no at no point is there ever any clue as to why this is happening, what his involvement is in it. I mean, there's there's just nothing, nothing to tie it to the actual story. It could have been very cool. I thought it was kind of creepy and kind of cool that that he was around collecting keys while he was in a coma. And it just, again, just fizzled out. Yep. And then there's the whole thing with Tango's mom, who was, like, killed when he was young, and he never knew what happened to his mom. And then, like, I have to imagine that she might have been reincarnated as this one character who tries to have sex with Tango. <laughs> it's just, like... Uh, <laughs> I mean, again, a part of a story that's fully unnecessary, really weird, and borderline incestuous. Um, and... Fine. If I mean, do that if it's going to do something for the story, but it does nothing for the story at all. It, it's just over and over again. I'm just like, what's the point? Over and over again, what's the point? In summation, there were a lot of concepts that could have gone some really good places. I think um, some of it, even like I said, the NHKP collector thing. I was actually a little creeped out when when it occurred to me that you know it, it was tango's father and not my my initial thing is the conversation you just really like me rob i thought it was ushikawa trying to get in to these places is <laughs> me what too. my initial thought was yeah me too. and then when i realized it wasn't him i thought oh man that's kind of creepy and i wanted it to be something and the resolution for you folks who aren't going to read the book is um the nhk fee collector at one point just stops coming around that's that's the resolution for that storyline and that's really the theme for the whole book is like, I mean, it's a love story lacking in love and, and the parts where there's action, there's not a lot of action and there's never any consequence or, or, or reaction, you know, like anything that gets built up just eventually stops or fizzles out, especially with the action moments. Like there, anytime something is thrown out there, like that could be a bad thing. There's no consequence except for one time in the book where there's a character who is killed and I'm like, yes, thank you. You know, this guy was doing something. He was causing a problem and they had to kill him as the solution. Fine. That makes sense. But one time in the entire book and everything else is like, it builds up and it goes nowhere or it builds up and there's no um, blowback or, or, or problem. You know, it just all kind of just keeps moving, trudging forward. Absolutely. It's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, just to touch on <laughs> the whole thing about them, you know, trying to be a love story and they spend almost zero time together, blah, blah, blah. Okay. The Night Circus, if you think back a little bit, those characters ran into each other. It was absolutely a love story about the, the two main characters in that, the, the competing magicians. Mm -hmm. They barely saw each other through the first half of the book. I think they met once, you know, whatever. It was still believable as a love story. Mm-hmm. Because those moments that they had together were powerful and very compelling. And there was no power and no compulsion <laughs> anywhere in this story. Absolutely true. I don't even want to do quotes. Do you want to do quotes? <laughs> you know, I had one I liked, but man, after talking about this book for this long, I don't want to fucking talk about it anymore. So, um, you want to just read some of your notes out loud? Some of these are just absolutely <laughs> great. <laughs> I don't know. Let's see. Uh, okay. All characters are flat and boring. A love story where the two main characters are too chicken shit to talk to each other for 20 years? Question mark. They deserve to be alone, and their story is not compelling. <laughs> the most interesting character in the book was Ushikawa, and it's only because I'm happy that he's dead. <laughs> oh, yeah. And did anyone notice that he, in a roundabout way, was justifying rape? <laughs> There's another one. If you're going to introduce a fantasy element, either make it huge and awesome or anecdotal. Don't make it integral to the plot and also boring. Fucking little people don't care. The book trailer sucks. We'll link to it. <laughs> one thing that we said in the in the year in review episode was that we're going to be harsher on books in 2012. <laughs> we're really hitting the ground running with that promise. We're we're. We're not breaking that resolution just yet. But this does actually, um, um, well, no, let's let, let's wrap it up first. I was going to say this brings back a, a favorite segment of mine that we haven't done in a while. Read this, not that. All right, let's do our ratings really quick, and then we can get over to read this, not that. Let's do it. 
I'm going to be really quick because we just railed against this book for however long we just talked about it. But um, I think the best thing to say about this book is that, like Livia said, there was a lot of interesting concepts and a lot of things that, you know, seemed like it had promise, but nothing ever really went anywhere. And that's one of the biggest problems. The other big problem with it is that it's this gigantic tome that of, of repetition and, and just, like, nonsense and, and for the most part. And what could have been... I mean, if you... All right. If you if you called this book down from 940-whatever pages or whatever it is to maybe 350 to 400, at the very least, <laughs> you're getting more for what you, you, know, what you read. Um, and it could be a good story at that length. There's a lot of stuff that could just get completely cut out. Entire, like, subplots could just be stripped from this book. And it would be much better. Um, so, I mean, it was a good try. And I know that Murakami is a very well-respected author. But, I mean, if I were to, if, if I were talking to someone and I said, oh, yeah, I read that book, I, uh, I can't think of a person I would recommend it to. And so I am going to, oh, oh, Murakami fans, I'd say, you know what? You know, if you like this guy and you like his style, give it a shot. Um, but that's about it. So, <sighs> <laughs> after this long, long period of reading this book, I'm going to give it one and a half stars. Um, you know, if you took out the word taciturn, you could have shortened it by about half a page. I think that the word taciturn showed up like 18 times in this book. <laughs> um, yeah, what Rob said. I don't even think there's anything else to say about it. Flat characters, boring story, lots of open threads. And, you know, you call them open threads unless you just want to call them just non-essential to the story. And it's not that I'm one of those guys that thinks everything has to be essential to the story. I'm okay with anecdotal stuff too. And I know that some writers don't you know, think that you have to call out every single thing that's not essential to the story, but man, there was just like Rob said, the subplots, there was no resolution to them. There was nothing. You, you could easily take them out and nobody would have missed them. You know, I mean, there's just a lot lacking in this book way too long. I'm with Rob at 400 pages. This could have been a three-star book. Um, Oh, what the hell? Let's kick off the the new year right, and we'll go. Well, I'll go one and a half stars right along with Rob. One thing you I want to touch on that you said about um, that it's okay to have non-essential stuff in a story. I want to go back to what was unanimously our favorite book of of 2011, Strangest in the Proportion. Josh Deitch put stuff in that story that really didn't end up going anywhere, but it was good. I mean, it was good, and it was worth it to have it in there. Um, because it, it, I mean, it was it was good stuff, and like maybe not essential to the story, it could have been taken out. But I'm happy that it was in there. So I mean, those types of things exist, but not in one Q84. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. That's a good uh, that's a good uh, way to segue into our next segment. Read this, not that. I only have one suggestion. Um, if you're looking for a weird love story, you know, a love story that's got some kind of strange, maybe supernatural or fantasy elements to it. Go to Strangeness in the Proportion. I mean, it's it's more, more well, far darker, but I mean, such incredible writing. Um, I mean, it's a longer read, but it's 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 a wacky out there love story that's just incredible, and well worth your time. It's a longer read that's still half the size of this tome, so <laughs> just not to just not to straddle Rob on on that too. Um, just because I brought it up earlier, the Night Circus want some fantasy, want a big love story. There you go. You've got both elements. Does it much better? Far less loose ends, um, and just all around makes more goddamn sense. That's true, and it's definitely that like faded, you know, whole life kind of love story, kind of the way that one Q84 tries to be. Yeah, good point. Very good yeah, point. I'll go with you on that. Re- read your your last note there. <laughs> Um, I put this in the notes just for Livius, but I'll read it out. Uh, in my list of we read this, not that, I gave Strangers in the por- Proportion first. Uh, do you want me to read the blue part? Yep. <laughs> so for Strangers in the Proportion, I said, weird love story, Strangers in the Proportion. There's 100% less child rape. <laughs> and then um, my other suggestion would be The Pale King because it's shorter and more interesting. All right, and here's something you, you probably didn't expect to hear. If you were on a desert island and could only take one of those two books with you, being 1Q84 or The Pale King, um, read The Pale King. 
And that's coming from the guy that gave it one star. He gave <laughs> one Q84 a bigger rating than Pale King. Yeah, the Pale King was actually unfinished. Like, I don't want to say on purpose, but that's how it was released as unfinished. I think one Q84 was unfinished just because nobody took the time to, to, to finish the goddamn story. So, <laughs> wow. All right, let's. Uh, you want to you want to get off this Murakami train? Yeah, we've been on it for so long. There's a train too that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> Go into that. Uh, feel free to engage us offline and hear more ranting about <laughs> this goddamn book. Here's what I'm gonna say. I, I am no stranger to thousand page books. Some of my favorite books fall into that category. And you've heard it mentioned on the show before. Um, Stephen King's The Stand or It, both of them, I believe over 900 pages. Atlas Shrugged, um, I know a lot of people don't like that book. I think it's a classic, well over 1,000 pages. Love that book. Um, you know, th there's just, there's Magica by Clive Barker, fantastic book. Again, 950 pages. So it's not that I spent the time reading it. It's that I wasted the time reading this book. Bam. There it is. There it is. Yeah, I think we may have missed that on the last Episodes. I know. I wanted to make sure I brought it back for Mr. Ferg, Sean P. Ferguson. Put that a note now, just to say it. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so yeah, let's let's yeah. Um, I did read Hardboiled Wonderland. I, know I mentioned this another one, and I still have no idea what that book was about. So, uh, Mr. Murakami, uh, two strikes, and for me, that's it. That's all you get. You're out. Oh, I forgot to mention. Um, I told Livius this earlier. <laughs> My um, wow. <laughs> I was trying to stifle a laugh. <laughs> I told Livius this earlier before the uh, we started recording. My only experience with Murakami before doing recording this episode or reading this book for this episode was um, I used the his book Wind Up Bird Chronicles to keep my my window open in the summertime because um, it was a it was you know it would it would close on its own so I would just jam uh, that book up in there. So I mean he was a very important part of my life during the summer when it was hot in my apartment. Um, but had nothing to do with reading a book. What a way to kick off the year. I have, we have trod all over one of like the <laughs> more famous authors of contemporary fiction. This, this thing, you know, all right. I know I said we were done. We were done talking about, we're not done talking about <laughs> this is listed as editorial, editorial reviews. One of the top 100 books at, um, at Amazon. No clue why. This was um, Reader Poll, Goodreads, one of the top books of, of 2011. And it came out at the end of October. So, I mean, that's that's a lot of lists to get on with two months. So I'm going to also read to you because um, I realize if you're listening to a book review podcast, there is a slightly bigger book review podcast out there. Uh, it goes by uh, NPR. And I'm not sure if this is from their podcast or their actual radio show. But um, in case anybody has heard this, I, I have to read you this quote. Do you miss the girl with the dragon tattoo? Do you long for the thrill of following her adventures again through three volumes of exciting, intelligent fiction? If so, I have good news for you. She's got a sort of soul sister in one of the two main characters in Haruki Murakami's wonderful novel, 1Q84. Hey, Alan, choose, choosey, choose, whatever. I don't know if you read the first chapter and the last chapter and decided that that was enough to, to compare Aomame to Elizabeth Salander, but dude, seriously, you, you need a new gig. Reviewing books is not for you. The only way that you could write something like that seriously is if you had not read a goddamn word either of 1Q84 or of any of the Millennium Trilogy. There's no way that you can have read both of those and say something like that. That just made me so mad. I know I said we were done talking about it, but I just realized that I had bookmarked that and, and had to bring it up. There's there's no way. I, I want other people, if anybody else has read 1Q84, chime in and tell me if you think that there's any comparison between those two books. Other than he said, there's there's three, you know, three volumes, so to speak. I think that's where the comparisons end. All right, I'm going to be that um, slightly less drunk friend that pulls you off of the guy that you're in a bar fight with um, <laughs> so that we could move on to some other interesting stuff that's going on in the in the world of literature. Hey, here's I want to tease something, and this is not 100% yet, but we may be making an appearance on another podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, to talk about um, <laughs> Aomame's soul sister, right? That's right, Lizbeth Salander. <laughs> 
we're in the works right now with the Fat Nay uh, movie podcast to uh, have a group outing to take in a girl with a dragon tattoo. We realize we're a few weeks late on this, um, but they want to see it, and uh, we love the books. So uh, we're thinking about doing a little crossover with them. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen it everywhere, and I'm sure that you guys have seen too the, the you know, book versus movie versus movie kind of thing where people analyze the three different ones, like the iterations of, of the dragon tattoos, uh, the movies and books. But um, we're gonna do it anyway because I want to see the movie. Heard great things about it, and um, why not? Why not talk about it? They they <laughs> we're really helping them out because they don't read. So we're adding a little element of legitimacy to their show. I think that's the way I look at it. You guys may remember Dan from uh, from um, ZBMB and the ensuing David uh, James Keaton interview that uh, that we did. Um, so yeah, we're going to be on there. If you've never listened to Fat Nate podcast, um, don't expect anything like you hear on Booked. <laughs> oh, and another digression because you mentioned it. Uh, I think we mentioned it before. I, I'm not sure the but David James Keaton's ZBMB is out in print now it was re-released in print so uh make sure you go pick that up we'll, we'll put links for that on our website for this post for this episode absolutely and man we're just segue crazy we are um, also um as you guys may know flywheel magazine is the online home for david james keaton um he is the editor and i guess online publisher for that website and their issue number two is out it's on my high on my list of things to do in this next week or so now that I put down this goddamn book. Yeah, so go check it out. We'll link that up too. All right. What's up next? All right, let's talk about uh, – we mentioned it before. We actually dedicated an entire episode to Pablo de Stair's, um kind of odd literary challenge that he threw down recently that we're calling Out of Bullets Throw the Gun because that's kind of what he named the website. And I don't know if he ever gave an actual title to it, so that's just what we're going to call it. That's still going on. Again, voting's going until the end of the month, I believe. And um, we'll have details for that on the website. But as we go along, we'll be talking a little bit more about the stories. And I think we're going to... Are we going to give our final results of what we voted for? Absolutely. Next episode. Next live. episode. Live. Well, it'll be live for us. And it'll be <laughs> yeah, so... Um, Again, I'll throw links for that. We'll put it up on Facebook, too. Pablo de Stair's, uh Crime Noir Flash Fiction Challenge. It's really interesting, and there's some there's some good stories in there, so make sure you go check that out. And then booked alum Nick Corpon, um, Old Ghosts, was nominated for a Spine Tingler Award. So it's his, uh, his novella. Um, <laughs> Rob just loves linking things. It says, we will link to the voting, which goes to the end of the month. So we're going to throw up another link for that, too. Um, Snub Nose Press just released an ebook format, and uh, you can, of course, get the print version too if you'd like. And another little teaser it looks like we'll be having uh, Mr. Corpon on again um, in February for one of our intro two episodes. Yeah, pretty excited about that. Congrats to Nick for being nominated for the Spine Tangle Award. Let's hope that he, he brings that baby home. Cast my vote this morning. Oh, uh, yeah. See, I saw where to vote, and I didn't vote yet, so. I don't know why. I went I went that far. I got to the precipice. I just couldn't jump. <laughs> um, yeah, looking forward to having Nick on to talk about a, a genre, an intro to episode two. That's going to be exciting. And then, uh, I don't know how interesting this is, but of course, until the Nook folks make us that offer, uh, we're going to keep talking about the Kindle. Um, Kindle Graph. You can have your, uh, your Kindle copies now signed with Kindle Graph. Um, Authors can now digitally sign your ebooks using that service. Um, there's currently uh, over 12,000 books by 28 different authors. 2,800 uh, different authors. 2,800. Yeah, I guess it would be hard <laughs> to do the other way around. 2,800 different James authors. Patterson and 27 other authors. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, basically, the, uh, the way that works is... Um, you can request a signature for your for your copy. It's for these certain books. Um, the author then does something on their end um, that then shows up on your Kindle as an autographed copy. Now, not nearly as cool as it initially sounds. The only two choices are regular, you know, typeset, whatever the regular Kindle font is, or a very generic handwriting. So your signature would come from the author, um, but it would be in a generic handwriting font. So it wouldn't match up to your paper copy signature that you got from patterson or whoever yeah and <laughs> on the website they even it's kind of weird that they say this but um on the kindle graph website because i was checking it out earlier 
Um, the authors actually can do like a signature if they want to, but it's just basically they're clicking and dragging their mouse, so it's going to look way different than if they were like writing with a pen. Um, and even on the Kindle Graph website, they're like, it doesn't really look that good. <laughs> but it is an option, I guess, that authors have. It's kind of neat to see it's the first um, advance in e-readers in I don't know how long. I mean, <laughs> yeah. two years I've had the e-reader, there's not been one advance in how the e-reader functionality works. So it's nice to see that they're at least trying to do some other things. It's a step in the right direction. I mean, you know, that's something that people are going to care about. And how do you personalize something in a digital, you know, world? So it's not going to have resale value, but, you know. If you have a favorite author, and right now, I mean, honestly, the of the authors that I managed to look through, I didn't look at all 2,800 authors, but I reckon... What? 20,000. <laughs> no, you said 28. <laughs> oh, did I? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't look at who all the authors were, but I recognized just one of them. So obviously it's something that's new, but, um, you know, I mean, maybe it'll go somewhere cool. And if you really like an author, they can... They can uh, personalize it and say something nice or something sexy or something like that for you, I guess, depending <laughs> on what you're looking for from your authors. Uh, <clears throat> something <throat> litigious. Just a couple of other quick notes, and we're going to let you guys move on to NPR <laughs> reviews or whatever if you're still listening to that crap. Um, the Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Library is celebrating their first anniversary. Um, this is more of a word of warning in case you did not hear us talk about this. Uh, the couple other times we mentioned it on the show, Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Library, not nearly as cool as it sounds. So unless you live in Indianapolis and are really bored on uh, the 28th of February, uh, oops, January 28th, um, just, you know, do something else. Um, yeah. Um, we mentioned we talked about this before and everything, and and I don't want to say anything bad about the Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Library, but I just wouldn't go too far out of my way for an event there. I mean, I looked at kind of the the itinerary of what's going on, and it looks like all kind of cool, interesting stuff. But again, there's not a lot of substance to it. So to dedicate, you know, a, a drive from another state and then maybe staying in a hotel or something, not not that great of an idea. Um, it's fun to look at and check out and everything, but I mean. That's a half hour, hour visit to, you know, uh, that's how much time you'd want to dedicate to it. I wouldn't make a whole day event out of it. Yeah, correct. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, one other thing that, that came across our radar recently was um, the Noir at the Bar event. Uh, it's something that goes on in St. Louis on a regular basis. Um, they're, they're having one February 28th, and... Um, Two of the guests are b booked alum, Caleb Ross and Gordon Highland. Um, it's the again February twenty eighth, which for anybody who has been paying attention is the day before AWP starts in Chicago. AWP goes February 29th through the third, so I'm gonna do my best to cajole Livius into um, actually going down there and, and checking out that event with me. The cajoling has begun. Oh yeah, it already started and. I, I I would love to see a Noir at the Bar event. When we went down to Indiana for that book release party, we met a bunch of those guys, and they were a lot of fun. So um, I think it'd be cool for for our listeners to hear about this uh, this event a little bit more. Speaking of Caleb Ross, um, we've got a, a double dose of Caleb Ross coming up for you guys this next episode. Um, if we go back to episode, oh, I don't know, 8, 10, whatever we talked nine. Oh man skipped all over that we first talked to caleb um we talked a lot about um i didn't mean to be kevin his uh, second novel and uh that releases upon us so we'll be talking about that as well as his most recent um, novella release as a machine in parts yeah looking forward to some new caleb ross uh we got a little you know a little sampling where we read warmed and bound but really you know, it's been since Stranger Well that we've had a chance to talk a lot about what's going on with him. So looking forward to revisiting him a little bit. Yeah, I am looking forward to it, too. It's like Caleb Ross month. <laughs> it really is. Um, I think I, that's all I've got to talk about. Do you have any other news? Are we good? No, I think we're good. I could say some more things about 1Q84. They keep occurring to me, but I'll, I'll stop here. Yeah, Livius is in and another thing mode. His birthday was last week, the 12th. 
Haruki Murakami. Yeah. Hmm. Did he turn eighty four? No. He All right. Sixty-ish. All right. So if you want to get a hold of us and and tell us we're completely wrong about one Q eighty four and how it's the best um, book you've ever read, uh, you can reach us on our website bookedpodcast.com on Facebook facebook.com slash bookedpodcast and you can email us bookedpodcast at gmail.com and if you're looking for places to listen um, Stitcher Smart Radio for Smart Folk it's like making a new page Stitcher Smart Radio for your smartphone hey that's right it is for your smartphone what do you know that's right. Um, or <laughs> iTunes, Zoom Marketplace, um, Blueberry.com. And, uh, Head over to yeah. Frank Edler's house. I'm sure he'll he'll listen to it with you. That's right. Frank Edler's car has us looped 24-7. <laughs> That's about it for another exciting episode of the book podcast. I'm Lydia Snudden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Keep reading.